you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We began our study of verses 1 through 10 uh, last Sunday. And in God's kindness, we are in verses uh, 4 through 10 here on Easter. Um, I'd like to tell you I planned for that. Uh, I plan to be past this at this point, but um, back in February, our family got COVID, and so I didn't preach for a couple Sundays. And so, uh, in God's kindness, this is where we are on Easter Sunday, and I can't think of a better place to be. Uh, It's impossible to say for sure, but I imagine that it was the moment that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane that the reality began to truly settle in on the disciples. Uh, From that point on, the the situation around them became more and more hopeless up until the moment that all of their hopes were laid in the tomb next to Jesus' lifeless body. Just think about it. Everything that they had been working for, all of their hopes of Jesus being the Messiah and ushering, ushering in the kingdom, all of those things died right along with Jesus. We hear it in the the words of the men on the road to Emmaus when they say, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Did you notice what they said? We had hoped. But how do you hope in a savior who is lying in a tomb? Last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we looked at a similarly helpless and hopeless situation. Uh, Paul explains that apart from Jesus, all of humanity is dead in sin, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and justly condemned under God's righteous wrath. And dead, enslaved, and condemned people can do nothing to save themselves. We can do nothing to make ourselves alive. We can do nothing to free ourselves. We can do nothing to justify ourselves before the judge of the world. We are hopeless. Maybe you've found yourself in a hopeless situation at some point in life. Maybe a medical issue or of, that you have had or that a loved one has had or a financial need that feels unsolvable. Maybe you've been helplessly lost at some point. <laughs> or maybe you've been completely at a loss about what to do next in a particular situation. And maybe that situation actually didn't resolve. Maybe it truly was hopeless. Maybe some of your greatest fears became realities. But then there are the times when all hope seems lost, and at just the right time, a solution arrives. The money is given, or a a patient improves, or the next step becomes very clear, or the Savior comes back to life. (laughs) And those who had hoped that he was the Messiah find themselves instead running to Jerusalem to tell all their friends that Jesus is in fact risen from the dead. Into our our hopeless situation described in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul gives us the most hopeful of phrases, and it's one of the shortest of phrases. It's this, but God. He takes all the darkness of our spiritual condition, and he fills it with the light of divine hope in those two little words. The commentator Bao writes this, the grim, plodding, hopeless, long-syllabled announcement of human lostness is shattered by a lightning bolt from heaven, not in judgment, but with intervening mercy and love beyond all reckoning. But God, 
In our sin, we are like Abraham and Sarah, told that they would have a child at 190 years old, respectively. You remember what they did? They laughed. (laughs) They laughed at God, to which he responded with a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We're like Mary when she asked how she, a virgin, could give birth to the Messiah, and she was told by the angel, nothing, nothing will be impossible with God, but God. It's too hard for us to save our own souls, but nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's impossible for us to find life, freedom, and forgiveness by ourselves, but nothing is impossible for God. And as Paul reveals the miracle of how our union with Christ transforms our hopeless situation, he calls us today to glorify God as the only one who can save us. That's our big idea for this Easter Sunday. Glorify God as the only one who can save us. On this Easter Sunday, God's word is calling us to worship God in Christ because when we were dead and enslaved and condemned, when we were without hope, God did what only he could do. And so therefore, glorify God as the only one who can save us. With that big idea in mind, could I read Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one, all the way through verse 10. God's word says, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our focus today is going to be in verses 4 through 10. These seven verses are packed full of reasons to glorify God for, uh, because of the salvation that he has accomplished for us packed enough that I thought it would be helpful to put my outline in the bulletin so that you could follow me because there's a lot going on. Uh, As you can see there, we're going to organize our thoughts uh, like this. Who God is, what God has done, how God has done it, and why God has done it in the way that he has done it. (laughs) So that's how we're going to walk through this passage. First, who God is. We see who God is throughout this passage, but let me point out two things in particular in verse four. First, we see that he is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. We saw back in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 that God is rich in grace and has lavished that grace on his children. And we said when we were walking through that passage that usually we think about being rich in money, but you can also be rich in other things, rich in beauty or rich in athletic ability or rich in personality. And so what is God rich in? He is rich in mercy. He has a never-ending supply of mercy. 
Now, mercy is very similar to grace. You hear those words connected very often. And in fact, Paul is going to talk about the riches of God's grace in verse 7. If you want to think about the difference between these two words, I think the simplest way to do that is to say that grace is God giving us what we do not deserve, and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And in light of the description of who we are and the condemnation that we deserve, it makes sense that Paul would highlight God's mercy in particular here. We deserve, based on verses 1 through 3, to face the wrath of God because of the the sin that we are born in and the sin that we practice. But in God's mercy, he's patient and he does not give us what we deserve. His justice waits, not out of laziness, but out of mercy. And his justice is satisfied, not by dismissing it, but through the merciful death of Jesus. Where exactly does this mercy come from? Why is God merciful to us? It seems connected to that next phrase where we find that God is not only rich in mercy, but he is active in his love. I love the the words that Paul uses here, because of the great love with which he loved us. God's love here is said to be great, and that great love is shown greatly to all of his children. Jesus himself defines the greatest love in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Today we highlight the resurrection of Jesus, but we also have the cross of Jesus in view, don't we? And the cross is the place where Jesus revealed the greatness of his great love for us. As he laid down his life for his sheep, he made clear the depth of his love for us, a love that pursued us all the way into the darkness of death. In the cross, the Father himself also shows his love in the giving up of his Son. We know this truth. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The beginning of verse 5, then, you notice, is is clear that God's mercy and love come to us in the midst of our deadness and our lostness. They they came to us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, This reality serves to highlight the, the greatness of God's mercy and the greatness of his love, and it also reminds us that God's mercy and love are not conditioned on anything. As human beings, sometimes... Uh, we show mercy or we show love when we determine that someone is, is worthy. They've shown themselves worthy of mercy and love. We have some sort of unwritten criteria uh, for who is deserving of our kindness. They have to earn our love. And Paul knows this. Paul picks up on this human tendency in Romans 5. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, who is so unlike us, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not sure what comes into your mind when you think about God, but A.W. Tozer says that that is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. We often develop an image of God in our minds that is more rooted in our experience of the world than in the truth of Scripture. And therefore, God's Word might offer a rebuke to us today. It says to us that if our understanding of who God is 
doesn't include what we read here, then it has to change. So who is God? He is rich in mercy. A mercy that flows out of his great love for us. And this mercy and love come to us while we are still sinners. Because of who God is, filled with mercy and love, he has to act. So we see next what God has done. The phrase, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, not only highlights the, the greatness of God's mercy and love, but it reminds us of who we inherently are, according to verses one through three. And then it paves the way for the main verb of this whole section. Verses one through four have been sort of waiting for this moment. And even that phrase, but God, is, is waiting for a verb, this, this statement of exactly what God has done. However, what God has done can't be reduced to, to one action. And so we see this one verb blossom into three as Paul tells us what God has done. And in fact, Paul makes up verbs. He comes up with, with, with verbs in Greek and he links them all to Christ, emphasizing the truth of all that God has done for us in salvation. And all that God has done for us is in Christ. So what has God done? First, he has made us alive with Christ. He's made us alive with Christ. As Jesus truly died and was raised from the dead, so too we who were dead in our sins and from who, for whom eternal death was a certainty, we have been made alive. Now you hopefully see why there's a blessing in meditating on our condition before Christ. Because if we think that we are simply sick, or if we think that we're just misguided, or we think that we just make mistakes before God, then we're going to fail to see the truth that we in fact need to be made alive if we're ever going to be redeemed. Think about the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that we were drowning and that God needed to throw us a life preserver so that we could grab onto it. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we were dead on the bottom of the ocean and we need God to dive down to the deepest part of the sea and pull our lifeless body up off the sand and then bring us up onto shore and give us life. And the way he gives us life is through the miracle of resurrection, through the mystery that somehow when Jesus was made alive on the first Easter morning, we too were made alive. The hymn writer asks this question, were you there when he rose up from the grave? And Paul is telling us that there's a sense in which we who are Christians can say, yes, I was there. I was in Christ when he rose up from the grave. We announce he is risen, and then we say, he is risen indeed. But we could also say, he is risen. Me too. <laughs> he is risen. So am I. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical fact, it's a present reality for those who are in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus means that God has made me alive so that I can respond to him in repentance and faith. This is the, the new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus about. It's the truth of regeneration that allows us to respond to the gospel call. Being risen with Christ also means that now physical death is as harmless as falling asleep because we most certainly will be raised on the last day to life everlasting. As the grave could not hold Jesus, so it will not be able to hold any of us who have been made alive with Christ. 
And this is why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Not simply, again, because it's a historical fact, but because it is a present and a future reality for everyone who is in Christ. That's why I love the words of Russell Moore. He says, let us eat and drink and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. <laughs> That's what Easter is about. What has God done? He has made us alive with Christ. Second, he has raised us up with Christ. On Easter Sunday, it's hard not to think about being raised with Christ as another reference to him being raised from, uh, be, of being raised from the dead with Jesus. But this is actually probably a reference to the ascension of Jesus. Uh, the fact that he has ascended, and so too have we. Of course, we have not ascended to heaven, have we? We are all very much here on earth. So this either means that our ascension to heaven to be with Christ at death is so sure that it's as if it already happened, it's like past tense, we have risen, or he's speaking about a spiritual reality that is true even now. I'm not sure yet, but either way, the fact that we are raised with Christ means that, that what was true of Jesus is true of us. As Jesus conquered death and returned to the Father, so too death marks the transition for the believer to the presence of the Father. As Jesus was given a new body that would never die, so too, at the resurrection of the dead, we will be given a new body that is free from sin and will never die. As Jesus ascended into the heavens, so too, we will ascend to the dwelling place of God to be with him always. When Jesus ascends, he's not just going away, he's showing us where we are going because we are with him. And having been raised up with Christ, God has done a third thing, he has seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. It gets even more mysterious, doesn't it? Uh, this speaks of what some people call the session of Christ. Jesus is said to be seated at the, the right hand of God in power, interceding for his people. And we too, in a mysterious way, are seated with Christ. We are seated in this room, but our ultimate home and our final hope is that we will be exalted with Christ to live in the new heavens and the new earth with him. So what has God done? We could simply say, he saved us, and that would be okay. But we could also say, he has made us alive in Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us in the heavenlies. Each of these verb, verbs highlight what the church is often referred to as our union with Christ. Elsewhere, Paul even says that we're united with Christ in his death. In thinking about our union with Christ, let me try to illustrate it. What do you think this paper represents? <laughs> you, me, each of us. It represents all of us, okay? And um, if I take you and I put you on the gym bay, where are you? You're on the gym bay, right? If I put you on the music stand, where are you? On the music stand. If I take you and I put you in Christ, and, oops, and we're told that we are sealed, right? with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we won't take this illustration too far, I promise. But where are you now? In you're in Christ. If I put you on the djembe, where are you? You're on the djembe, but you're really, you're ultimately, you're in Christ, right? And if I put you on the music stand, where are you? In Christ. Now, if I take the, it's not really magic, I'm just letting you know. So, if, if Christ is, is destroyed, right? If Christ is is killed and crucified, where are you? You're in Christ. 
If Christ is, is buried, where are you? You're in Christ. It's not real magic. If Christ is raised, where are you? You're in Christ. Should I open it and prove it? Like a, like a real magician? <laughs> I know the trick too. You are in Christ. Wherever Christ is, that's where we are. We are, we, we are crucified with Christ. We are buried with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are ascended with Christ. We are seated with Christ. Everything that we have is because of what Christ has done. What has God done? He has put us in Christ. And in doing that, he has made us alive. He has raised us up. He has seated us in the heavenlies. So simple, we could just say, how has God saved us? He's united us to Christ. Next, then, we see how God has done it. How has God done all this? And, and in saying that, I'm not spe speaking specifically of Christ's death and resurrection, though that's one answer to the question, how has God saved us? It would be through his life and his death and his resurrection. Of course, that's a, a perfect answer. But rather here, what we're thinking more about is how this salvation comes to us. How does this truth about the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and session, how does that have any effect in my life? Remember, Paul talks about salvation being an inheritance, and so I want to ask the question, how do I get this inheritance that has been purchased for me and promised to me? How is it given to me? And he tells us that God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's begin by saying that he's done it by grace. We spoke of God's mercy and love in verse 4, but above mercy and love, Paul is emphasizing God's grace. He couldn't even resist bringing it up back in verse 5. He just kind of threw in a, a, by grace you have been saved in there. It just it had to come out in that moment. Uh, and then, and now in verse 8, he brings all of the strands of God's person and work together to say that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In light of our condemned state of the fact that we are under God's wrath for our sin, we see that grace is, is not just unearned favor from God, but rather it's favor shown to someone who deserves the exact opposite. If we think about grace, grace is not like giving a random person a million dollars. Grace is like dying as a substitute for our enemy, someone who doesn't deserve it. Amazing grace doesn't save a pretty decent guy like me, right? Amazing grace saves a wretch like me. God's grace comes to us when we're dead and when we're rebels. That's how great his grace is. So we're saved by grace, and secondly, it's through faith. In contrast to faith, Paul has all these phrases. Paul, Paul tells us, in contrast to being saved by faith, here's how we're not saved. We're not saved because of ourselves. We're not saved because of something in us. We're not saved by works. How could we who are dead and enslaved and condemned be saved by ourselves or by our works? It's impossible. Rather, we're saved through faith, through trusting in who Christ is and the work that he has done in dying as our substitute and rising for our justification to make us right with God. And just so we don't forget it, let's just say it one more time. How has God saved us? In Christ. In Christ, in Christ alone our hope is found. On Christ the solid rock I stand. It's only as we are found in Christ that we will be found to be saved on the last day. And now we say why. Why has God done it? 
And, and not only why has God done it, but why has God done this in the way that he has done it? Why has he saved us in the way that he has saved us, namely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And the easiest answer might be to say, well, because there was no other way. But given the condition that we were in, God had to work out of his own great power and, and holiness in love and mercy and grace to save us. But what Paul is highlighting here seems to be three things. First, why has God done it the way that he's done it? To exclude boasting. To exclude boasting of any kind. Paul's logic is clear. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. This is not of ourselves. It is not the result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. If God saves us in any other way than what's described here, then we have reason for pride. We have reason to pat ourselves on the back and even glorify ourselves in some way. But because we are saved in Christ alone, he receives all the glory. Remember again our, our dead at the bottom of the sea ocean story, that that's what the gospel is. You're dragged up from the ocean, you're given new life. Now can you imagine sitting on the shore and saying, well I guess I deserve a little bit of credit for the fact that I'm still alive. That's ridiculous. There's no credit given to a dead person who is brought back to life. No, God has saved we who were dead, and he has done it in a way that excludes all boasting. No one can have any pride in themselves for being saved. All glory goes to God. Paul says also that our salvation is a gift of God, and a gift ultimately magnifies the kindness of the one who gives it. It doesn't glorify the one who receives it. God has saved us, and the way he has done it is to exclude boasting. Second, we see in verse 10 that he's done it to make us co-workers with him. What an interesting verse that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to spend way less time on this than we should, but we're not saved by works, but we are saved to works. God, we are told, has laid out the good works that he has for us to do. As new creations in Christ Jesus with new hearts that can walk in God's ways, we are invited to work alongside the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the good works of the kingdom, both here in the present and in the future even. Just as Adam and Eve were co-workers with God in the garden, God invites us to work with him, not to earn our salvation, but because this is what we've been created for. And this then leads to the final answer as to why God has saved us and why he has saved us in the way that he has saved us. And this is probably what the whole passage has been pushing towards. We see it in verse 7, but it's also just the key of the, the whole book up to this point. Why has God saved us? To magnify the greatness of his grace and glory. To magnify the greatness of his grace and glory. To show how great his grace is, to show how great his glory is. In verse 10, we are said to be God's masterpiece or his, his workmanship. He has made us who we are like a master carpenter might make a piece of ornate furniture or like an artist might paint a, a portrait. And verse 7 seems to reference us as trophies of God's grace, as symbols of God's goodness and strength, recipients of his mercy and love. Maybe you have a trophy at home. Maybe you have some sort of a award that represents a specific accomplishment. Maybe you have a trophy case. Maybe you've got enough trophies that you need like a whole big spot to put everything that you've done. 
The commentator Bao says that in the ancient world, nations would dedicate statues and trophies won in battle. They would dedicate them to different gods. Therefore, he says, to enter a temple in antiquity was like entering a museum displaying various dedications and spoils of victory from old battles. So what about our God? What trophies does God have to reveal the greatness of who he is and of what he has done? His children. We who are in Christ, we are his trophies. We are the evidence of the greatness of his grace. We who were dead and now are alive show the world the power that God has in salvation. We who were enslaved and are now free magnify the greatness of his grace. We who were condemned and are now forgiven show forth his glory as those who have been saved by him and who work alongside him in bringing in his alongside him in his work of bringing the light of the gospel into this world we show forth now and in the coming ages paul says the riches of god's grace and the kindness of our savior friends we would have no hope in this world or the next apart from god but now because of all that he has done for us in Christ, we are called to glorify God as the only one who can save us. Glorify him as the one who is rich in mercy and great in love. Glorify him as the one who has made us alive with Christ, who has raised us up with Christ, who has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Glorify him because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be saved. There's no room for boasting in ourselves or in the works that we do because any good work we do, God has laid out for us anyways and he's empowered us to accomplish it. Our entire lives as God's children magnify the riches of God's grace and kindness. So glorify God as the only one who can save us. As we close, I wanna read you part of Eugene Peterson's translation and interpretation of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I found it to just be a good way to sum up Uh, what we've been thinking about. Here's part of that. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. Would you pray with me? Father, on this day we remember what you have done in Christ that no one else could do what you have done. No one else could, could send Christ to live a sinless life, 
No one else could die for the sins of the world. No one else could defeat death by resurrecting. No one else could ascend back into heaven. No one else could then give us the promise that you will return and take us to yourself so that we will be with you for all eternity. No one else could set up this perfect kingdom. And no one else could save us, Lord. No one else could could take all of these wonderful, amazing, breathtaking things that you have done and apply them to our hearts and our souls and our lives. Lord, we would be completely without hope in this world apart from your grace. Father, thank you for coming to live and to die and to rise again. All praise and glory to you today and forevermore. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.